I'm Amri Maffedon, CEO and head Stemet at Stemets. And I'm Carla Rosario, and this is Stemets Say What. Say what? In each episode, we'll meet a different expert to discuss what it's really like to break into the fields of STEM and STEAM, being science, technology, engineering and maths, and science, technology, engineering, arts and maths. It is those key things like accountancy, lawyers, liability, health insurance. What does that look like in different countries? Everyone thinks they're invincible until something happens abroad and it costs £20,000 and you don't have that. This week's guest is founder and CEO of 23 Code Street, Anissa Osmond Britton. She'll be answering our four what's on working abroad. So, hey, Anissa, how are you? Hello. Thank you so much for having me. I'm doing great. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. I'm good. To kick off, I want to take you back to the moment you first discovered the magic of STEM. What was that like for you? I was about 19. Um, before that, tech had just meant stinky men in the IT room playing games. I had no clue that there was anything else aside from that. At 19, I was running a company and my lead developer left. And I thought, right, I'm going to learn how to build this myself. So that's kind of how I got into it. I started off with JavaScript as my entry point into the world of engineering and coding and loved the potential that it allowed me to think about. It kind of expanded my horizons of, hey, I can think about something and then I can actually build it. Wild. I mean, that's the closest to Hermione Granger I'm ever going to get, really. And that was your first company. That wasn't 23 Code Street, though, was it? So how did you go from your Hermione Granger JavaScript moment to running... What even is 23 Code Street, actually? We should say that for the, for the, for the listeners and for the viewers. 23 Code Street is a coding school for women and non-binary people who feel more comfortable in a women-focused space. We train women in the UK and all around Europe now since we've gone mostly remote and also in the slums of Mumbai in India. So it's kind of like a one-for-one model. I started it because I then, after running that first company and doing stuff with it and closing it down and this and that and the other, went and worked for a corporate accelerator in London where I was working with really big corporates and really big startups. And lo and behold, every key stakeholder was a white man. And there were all these moments, like there was a moment where we were talking about the NHS and they were talking about health. And they were like, Anissa, so what do you think women will think about this? I was about 20 years old. I was like, do I represent 50% of the population? There were more and more examples of this to the point where I decided to leave that job and try and make a difference. I sort of have this belief, which Anne-Marie, I know you and I share, which is like, if our technical workforce represents the society we live in and that looks a bit more like us, it's hopefully, and as it is proving, going to be more likely that they build solutions for people like us. We need to be in there. We need to be making those big decisions. We need to be part of the decisions and where they make. We need to be taking control, which is the title of my book. But that's not why we're here today. We're here to talk about working abroad. Which, Anissa, I know you, and I know this is your thing. I'm shocked, listeners, actually, that Anissa is sat in England as we record this podcast. Because normally she's somewhere else. She's always somewhere else. Even her company that she runs is half here, half in India. You work abroad a lot, Anissa. This is a big thing, big theme across your career. Where does one start? How does one start even thinking about this? Maybe even researching If someone's listening to this, they've tuned in, they've read the title, they're ready to go, they've got their pen, they've got their paper, or they've got their phone or their notes app. 
Where do you start with your research on working abroad? Start with your job. So unless you are, unlike me, funded completely by your parents, you need money to be able to travel around, right? And so that's either being able to work remotely, which is kind of my absolute non-negotiable, or you need to be able to fund yourself when you have periods of not working, or you need to be freelance and set your own rules. So if this is something you want to do, you need to first look at your career trajectory and your work. It plays a really big role in figuring out if you can do this abroad. Now, like Anne-Marie says, I do travel around quite a lot, but I don't ever really live anywhere. I did one stint of that where I lived one year in Germany. And that's really different to say doing one to three months, which is what I tend to do more often. Because if you're going away for a whole year, you can have an in-person job. You can go work somewhere for a whole year or two years or three years or whatever you want to do. But if you want to do the travel thing, it's a slightly different requirement. That's a really interesting distinction, especially post-COVID with remote work being more and more feasible. There are kind of two ways in my head to work abroad. One is to like get some permanent job somewhere or ask your company to move you to a different country. And the other one is to just go so like what was your experience of doing those kind of two different ways of working abroad and kind of how did you come up with it the remote thing is really interesting and i've been doing it for a while now especially as like the india uk thing and the biggest challenge with it is the time difference if you've got like a team who works out here in the uk or you're working with clients say somewhere else in europe or in this case like india with a five-hour time difference figuring out like your work schedule can be It can be detrimental to your health in lots of ways because you find that you're working really late into the nights or you're working really early in the mornings. You're missing out on your social life. So for me, it was finding a schedule that kind of fitted into that. So if I'm working, say, in India, what I would do is I will work really early in the mornings and then I'll take like the afternoon off and then maybe do some hours again in the evening. So then there are some hours of overlap. The opposite of that is if I'm like traveling and working remotely and I kind of maybe want some hours overlap to record a podcast, do a talk, maybe check in with the 23 Code Street team, then I'll set some hours again that overlap. So going to Mexico was really interesting because I wasn't going to go out at night by myself just because I didn't have any friends and I was a loner. So I would go out really early in the morning. I would go like swimming or surfing or go to a cafe. And then I would work for a few hours, maybe have a nap and then work again in the afternoon. And I was still doing about six or seven hours a day. But what allowed me to do that was my evenings were free. I was literally working at nighttime because there was nothing else for me to really do. So I think it depends on the freedom that you have to set your own schedule. If you are freelance, this is a much easier thing to do. I think it's a good point, but I also think it's something that might be changing, right? So the idea of flexi working or being in different places or instead of WFH, which is work from home, there's now WFA, which is work from anywhere. There is like a growing number of people who also maybe aren't freelancers, but are working at these kind of companies that have seen that within tax reasons, like we've said, those three months thing, that still works for them to enable people to be able to work elsewhere. And with so many roles or so many things that you might have in your role in STEM, that actually being abroad or being somewhere else definitely works with the way that you're working. So I think that definitely is an option even if you aren't a freelancer and you are a nine-to-fiver. It is about talking to your employer if you want to do that. But I'm wondering, Anissa, as a freelancer, was there anyone in particular that you spoke to about working abroad beforehand, like before you made the jump? Was there anyone that you're like, actually, yeah, like there are three types of people you should definitely talk to 
before you head out just to maybe sense check or to get a bit of info or even to like start connecting maybe as a freelancer in the new country? Yes, 100%. There are definitely people you should talk to. First one being an accountant of some kind, especially in this post-Brexit world, if you hold a British passport, figuring out how taxes work across borders is really important because sometimes you can only spend X amount of days in a country till you become liable to pay taxes or you lose certain benefits that you have here in the UK, like maybe healthcare or so on and so forth. So that's a really big one. If you're moving somewhere permanently, please speak to an accountant even more so because they are really helpful. Pay them as well. Speak to a lawyer. If you are freelance, this is really important. So you may have registered a company in your own name if you are freelance. You may have like a limited company that you kind of do all your work underneath. Again, that has different liabilities if you're working from abroad. Everything from insurance to liability to your own citizenship in the UK. Also, speak to a lawyer in that country. So when I moved to Germany for a year, one of the things... I was quite lucky was I moved just before that Brexit point where I was okay to stay for as long as I needed to. I just had to register for specific things. But it meant that I lost things like my NHS benefit here in the UK. So speak to a lawyer to figure out what your situation is in both countries. And if you're like me and you do have a company in the UK or two, in my case, 23 Co Street and then the company that I freelance under, then you want to also make sure that your liability as a director is not impacted by you being abroad for a specific amount of time. And if it is, do you need to bring someone else in? Do you need to hire someone to be your voice while you're away? What are the parameters of you moving? Also speak to like your friends, you know, figure out like times you want to speak to them so you don't become lonely. Figure out how you're going to stay in contact. Are you going to get them to come out and meet you? Those things are really important because it can be really hard to not have a community and a group of friends or family when you do do this. I think that leads quite nicely into our second what, actually. What do you have to prepare when you move? You've already talked a bit about your tax and law liability stuff. Is there any other things you'd say are like really essential in your preparation? I think a lot of people overthink the travel and moving thing. I know I have no one that I really need to worry about, although that's slightly different now. I do care for, for my grandma alongside my family. But I think it's much easier once you're in a country to figure a lot of this out if you don't have dependents. If you have kids, that's a whole different situation because you need to figure out schooling, you need to figure out their residency. Do they need a visa? If you're on a work visa, for example, how can they get into the country? But if you're not thinking about that, I'll put that to one side for a second. It is those key things like accountancy, lawyers, liability, health insurance. What does that look like in different countries? Everyone thinks they're invincible until something happens abroad and it costs £20,000 and you don't have that. So like health insurance is like a really big one. And then how are you going to make money? Where Where is your financing coming from if you don't have a full-time job? Do you have enough in the bank to support yourself for three months? Which is always kind of like the minimum I think you should have if you're traveling. That's a good number, actually. Three months is always a good number, especially if you're going to be elsewhere. I mean, the medical thing is quite scary, I find, actually. It's one of those things that you don't know what you've got till it's gone, right? Like, until you leave, you're like, oh my goodness, it costs how much to give birth? Like, what is that? I'm wondering just also, because we've been quite tactical on this, what's the moving process like? Is it just book a plane <laughs> and carry your laptop and go? Or, you know, for you, has it been suitcases? Has it been putting things in storage? 
Like, what's been the mechanics of it all? Yeah, so let's talk short-term versus long-term. If you're moving short-term, so say a month to three months, and you can afford to carry on paying your rent or you can sublet or you own your place and can afford to pay the mortgage, I would say just leave everything and go. So that's how I've done it in the past where I've had friends come in and they could take like my room for a period of time or I've had enough to be able to cover that cost. So I think that's the main one, right? If you're going back and forth, you want to make sure that if you're paying two costs, which you will, you'll be paying for accommodation in one place and you'll be paying for your accommodation back home. Can you afford to do that in some way, shape or form? If you're going long term, put your stuff in storage, sell as much as possible, put things in your parents' attic. Or what I've now tended to do is just to like get rid of everything. When I moved to Germany, I moved with my bare minimum. They came and picked me up in a in a van, put everything in there as it was like a work move and took what I needed to there and everything else got sold. So that's kind of like the difference between short and long. In terms of like the other side of things, I always think you kind of want a base when you get there. So you're not worried about where am I going to stay when I land, right? So I like to book a week first just to be able to check out the area. Am I in the right place? Is there stuff going on here? Am I going to enjoy the next month here? And then if you do, then you can book like a longer period of time. The great thing about something like Airbnb or VRBO is the longer you stay somewhere, the cheaper it becomes. But what I've also tended to do to save a ton of money, because if you're doing this a lot, it gets expensive quick, is call up your friends. I know you've moved to Mexico or I know you live in Spain. Can I come and crash with you for a couple of weeks? The joy of having like a global workforce now is that we do have lots of people in different places, whether that's family or friends, and call in those favours. While you're figuring out what it is you want to do or where you want to stay a bit more permanently, you'll find people love that. You cook for them, you take them out a little bit, and that kind of balances who's doing a favour for who. And that's really nice as well. That's so cool. You've got some fun friends. I'm going to tell all my friends to move away so that I can do the same. When you moved to Germany, was it important for you to like learn German before you went or know a little bit or did you take lessons when you were there or did you not bother? I speak Spanish and well, I speak Spanish fluently and French decently. So that kind of helps you around Europe. You can muddle words together to be able to speak. But when I moved to Germany, I barely spoke any German and I didn't move to Berlin. I moved to a tiny wine village in the middle of absolutely nowhere, about a half an hour, 45 minute drive away from Frankfurt Airport. So literally, I'd go to the supermarket and people wouldn't speak English. So I had to learn like the bare minimum. But I moved like just at the beginning of COVID. So like I didn't really have a lot of people around me to practice the language with. I survived with Google Translate. But the language thing was really important. I was very lucky. My workplace paid for lessons to speak. German and to learn German. So that got me the basics. But to really get around, I had to use Google Translate everywhere. And that's really tough, actually, because you lose a sense of personality, like you lose a sense of humor when you like joke around with someone behind the counter at checkout, whatever it may be, that's kind of like lost in translation if you don't have familiarity with a language. So yeah, learning languages, I think is really important. You also don't want to be the stereotype of that English person who goes to a country and is just like, yo, what's up? Because it's true, people still don't speak English in certain places. And I don't think that's their issue. That's ours, especially if we're moving there. So 
being very aware of cultural differences is key to fitting in and trying to be respectful to local ecosystems. Yeah, you don't want to be that English person that just goes to another country and like speaks very loudly and very slowly, hoping people understand what you're saying. But there is definitely like an advantage, I think, with STEM careers that folks maybe forget sometimes that actually whatever your experience is here, like if you go to another country, sometimes actually your language being the bilingual and then the experience that you have in that particular culture, there's things that you can bring in that are not just language, but also experiences here. You, I'm sure you'd have seen like in the German tech scene, things are different to the English tech scene. And so there are things that for you would be normal that for them are like new and vice versa. And there's like a incentive or like a advantage, I guess, to like traveling and working because of that. Yeah, you learn so much about like the differences within the ecosystem as well and what we deem as important and what they deem as important. But mm. I think the biggest difference is how we conduct business. We love small chat here in like the London tech ecosystem. <laughs> That's just not a thing in Germany. You go straight into the like, what do you do? How long have you been doing it for? Why do you do it? Why, why, why? You're like, okay, I'm being interrogated. But it's not. It's their way of trying to understand. It's their way of being really passionate about the industry. But that was a massive, a massive challenge for me going in because I'm just used to joking around about it. So this leads us nicely into our third what, which is what changes did you experience that you weren't expecting? What differences did you see maybe in your career or in the pathway that you were on that you were like, gosh, this is this is quite different or this is a big change or I wasn't expecting this to be that different? I think the Biggest change was the formality of running a company in Germany. In the UK, we can get away with quite a lot and it's a very low bar and very low barriers to entry to starting a company and to running a company. And there's lots of government initiatives to make that easier for us. In Germany, that is not the case. So being CTO and having some responsibility towards the company, especially on the e-commerce front, you have to learn and understand how bureaucracy works. You have to work with government, regulators, all sorts, even at an e-commerce company, which you just really wouldn't do here. Everything is easy to set up. So learning how to speak their language was quite a big one. The second one is the formalities within a company. So that's kind of external regulators and all that good stuff. But internally, us having to record everything, the receipts that we had, the amount of information our CFO, our chief financial officer needed in order to be able to process invoices or give us our expenses back, whatever that may be. Again, the barriers to entry are so much higher. There is so much paper in Germany. We had a whole room in the office. Our office was quite big, but there was a whole room, which is, a, say, the size of a box room in the UK, which is just paperwork from the last three years. Everything is kind of saved, has to be scanned, but you also have to retain the paper copies for I think it was three to five years I can't remember so that's really different and then that creates a whole bunch of challenges internally it slows certain things down and then I think the third one is how you hire and fire people in Germany once you hire them which isn't that difficult to do although there are different ways of doing it there are all sorts of levels which I'd never heard of before such as like student hiring internships apprenticeships they work very differently to how we hire in the UK. So getting my head around that was one thing. But being able to fire someone or make someone redundant is honestly almost impossible because they have really high worker protection laws in Germany. So you have to really go through this process of why this person isn't doing a good job. 
you have to really prove that you've put in as much time and effort to get them to where you need them to be. And you're not just firing them because you're too lazy to do anything about it. So those internal kind of challenges within companies were unexpected to me. I didn't really know that was going to be a thing. And then lots of other kind of side things like investment in Germany is really different. Opening up a bank account takes forever unless you go with like a neo bank like N26. All that stuff just felt hard, very well organized. And there's like process for everything, but difficult if you come from a country like the UK where it's just really simple to do that stuff. It's so interesting because I feel like like moving abroad, you'd expect culture shock. I wouldn't have thought that it would be so actually entrenched in your work life as well. Did you like find a good support network? How would you say you managed that? If you're moving somewhere, find a sponsor. Find someone who's really going to support you through the process, who really understands what it is that has been done. That can be a friend of a friend who's done the move a year before you and can talk you through the steps. If you're moving to Germany, everyone's moved to Berlin in the last few years. There will be someone who will hold your hand through that process. Ideally, they also speak German. If you are moving for a job, for example, they will have people who can help you. That may be normally like a chief people officer or someone in HR who can really explain to you what it is you need. Just make sure they give you a list, a checklist of what you need and when you need it by. But if you're doing it completely on your own, it's not impossible either. There are loads of really helpful websites. The gov.uk website for moving anywhere is excellent. I, I can't fault it. They have so much information as to what you need and what you're liable for. If you're moving to somewhere in Europe, Nomad List is really good. They basically have all the countries that people tend to move to for nomadic reasons. So I guess you have a lot of remote workers in these places. And it tells you how much money you need for a month to live there, how much rent is on average there, how much food costs, maybe some big tech communities that you can go and work from. So Nomad List is a really good resource around Europe. I know people use it in South America and stuff too, but I've always found it's much more populated with information on the continent. And then if you're moving specifically to Germany, local.ee, or is it called thelocal.de, is this fabulous like German news website, but in English. And they have all the kind of latest information and lots of expats are on there answering questions and writing articles about what you need to know when you move and what the challenges are and also the benefits of moving, which are incredible and they outweigh the bureaucracy for sure. Awesome. I think those benefits would be a good one to maybe unpack a little bit. So what what are the benefits you'd say of working abroad? There are tons. I think if you move to somewhere in mainland Europe, one of the biggest is the work-life balance. We kind of talk about it here, but especially in London, I think we have a work, work, work kind of culture. It has changed during COVID and the work-life balance thing has changed. But somewhere like Germany, Spain, they're very protective of their working hours and leaving work at home. And I think that was a really big lesson for me to learn. They're also very like active ecosystems, like physically active ecosystems. And that's quite a nice thing as well. London is too, actually, but having those differences was really nice. And then it's just things like the culture change, the food change, being able to understand how people experience technology and innovation and the problems that they are facing and they're only down the road right it's only a two-hour flight away but it is different and I think that gives us perspective into what we're building whether that's then coming back here and building here or then trying to build for those local markets 
or say you're running a startup and you're expanding, having on the ground experience really changes your mindset of expansion. And then it's just about friends, right? Having a wider ecosystem and a wider group of friends is just lovely when you then decide to travel to different places or, you know, you want to understand a bit more about cultures. And I think that's been a wonderful thing that I've been able to experience quite a lot in my travels. I imagine it's like quite refreshing to go somewhere which is so different. So I think there were so many things, like you said, even if you weren't doing tech or anything, like just seeing how other people live and kind of experiencing it for yourself would be a good experience. How easy is it to like translate your qualifications? Do you have to like explain a lot or do countries know what A-levels are? It depends where you come from. So if you come from somewhere that I would call highly privileged, like the UK, the US, from a well-known university, that stuff is very easily translatable. You rarely required to do anything else aside from show those documentations. We had a lot of Syrian refugees for us and the process there is very different. So they have to get their qualifications translated. Often you have to find what they are closest related to. So for example, A-levels in the UK are very closely correlated to what is the Abitur in Germany or the International Baccalaureate in other countries, which we also do in the UK as well. But that translation has to also get verified by a lawyer and all sorts of other stuff. But if you are from the UK, that stuff is much easier. They're used to it, especially in tech startups. And if you're working remotely for like a German company or another company, a middle kind of man, like a provider like remote.com or deal, deal with all that stuff, no pun intended, on your behalf. So you don't have to worry about how those qualifications work and where you upload them to. That kind of all happens within that process of being hired remotely. I love that we're going into so much detail. I, I think it is one of those ones that it's exciting to be able to even just see that perspective and understand. For me, perspective, like that's the big thing about travel is always perspective. Like how, how do things look from the outside or how do things look from elsewhere and what's normal here versus what's normal in other places? And I find it does allow you to have that. Like even something like qualifications where you're like, yeah, this is an A-level. <laughs> like, why wouldn't you go, oh, this is a degree? It's like, no. Like really in somewhere else, they've got a completely different system, completely different curriculums, completely different priorities, completely different histories. And so actually that then also gets reflected in what you do with STEM. And I think it is something for anyone listening, you know, before we go into our fourth what of thinking about that across, you know, we're talking about entrepreneurship and industry, but also in academia. How do those things translate? What does that look like? You get so much from collaborating internationally. And so actually look out for opportunities there as well to say, I'm going to do, you know, a term abroad or a semester abroad, or I'm going to do you know, look for a, a, a position or a temporary position or, you know, do some stuff elsewhere. We've definitely had people on the podcast as well that have talked about that. So thanks so much, Anissa, for going through the nitty gritty. Over to you, Carla. So I'm going to launch our fourth what. Anissa, what are your main takeaways from the experience of working abroad? Better food, better weather. No, that's terrible, isn't it? I think the Biggest thing that I have found from being able to travel is finding that kind of work-life balance. What I will say just to preface this is, I think it's really difficult, or I would personally have found it really difficult, maybe it's more accurate, to have done any of this without having initially worked with people in an office where I'd picked up some really key skills. I don't know how I would have done that working remotely, but then... Maybe I'm a millennial and like Gen Z will already find a way to do that better. 
But once I already had those key skills and knew how to keep myself organized and keep on top of myself, finding like that work-life balance has been an absolute game changer for me. As someone who really didn't have that running companies up until I was about 26, 27, I think that change has really made a massive difference to my life and my lifestyle and my health. A second big takeaway from the moving around has been that it's much easier than people make it out to be to have a life that is less permanent than we're told we're meant to be. We're kind of told that we're meant to go to university, we're meant to get a really good job, meant to end up in like a relationship, have a car, two and a half kids, that whole situation, which I applaud and I really appreciate that people want that and have that. But for those who don't, it's not as complicated as maybe it's made out to be. Yes, I come from a position of privilege. I work in tech. That is a high paid industry that enables me to sometimes pay for two places at once. But the actual like logistics of it and the time aspect of it and the actual accommodation side of it isn't as difficult. And that's because tech has enabled us to move more freely and our passports also have made it easier to move across borders. Again, a place of privilege that doesn't count for everyone. I hold a British passport and it gives me access to lots of places, including being able to get visas much more simpler than other people from other countries. I do get stopped everywhere with a name like Anissa Osman Britain, but there you go, you win some, you lose some. And then the third is just how much I've learned about what diversity and inclusion means across countries. It's really interesting how much we talk about DNI in the UK and how educated we are about it. Yes, I do 100% work in a bubble. Like all of us know this stuff back to front, and I'm sure our listeners do too. And what inclusivity means, and what intersectionality means, and why it's important, and how it benefits both culture, bottom line, and innovation. That's not both, that's three things, but anyway. That level of discussion and debate just doesn't exist in other places as much as it does here with the level of sophistication that we have. And it's interesting speaking to people as to why it doesn't and why there isn't an importance of it. And then it's interesting speaking to the people who are most highly impacted by it, who are saying, we need this to exist here because we experience racism, we experience sexism, our like gender parity within technology doesn't quite exist. Or then you go to India where it's the complete opposite and there are tons of women in engineering. So understanding that DNI doesn't look the same across the world has been very beneficial to me to be able to challenge my assumptions of the work that I do in this space. So there's a lot that you've gained from it. I know you're still traveling. I know something's not really going to stop anytime soon. How will you know if, and I say if not when, how will you know if the time comes to come back? I mean, this is the first year where I have basically had my feet planted and that's because of family commitments to being able to care for my grandma that change has really made me realize the level of privilege I have had to have that freedom I think maybe when it would change again is maybe with a partner who doesn't have the same freedom as me or I get bored of it I'm so bored of jumping from like city to city like one day here one day there I don't want to do that anymore I love spending a month to three months somewhere to really get immersed somewhere. So maybe that also changes and becomes like, I want to be somewhere a year to two years to really get immersed somewhere. I think it's just a case of boredom, family commitments, and am I going to run out of money? And if I do, then maybe I need to stand still for a little bit and, you know, 
fill up the coffers. I would so get tired of moving like day to day. I literally get like motion sickness from my life if I go back and forth Bristol and London twice in two weeks. That's too much for me. I guess one question is like, how did you make friends? Because I've got a lot of friends right now who are like on their year abroad and they go and they join a, a community with a university. It's like very easy. There are structures in place, places to go to make friends. How did you kind of approach that? I struggled in Germany and all my friends were work friends. And I guess that's because I moved in the middle of the pandemic. In other places, like I travel quite a bit to Estonia. I've mentioned Mexico. I spent a bit of time in Italy. A lot of the time I meet people through tech events, women in tech meetups. Maybe there's social impact stuff happening. And that then leads to, hey, do you want to come climbing? Do you want to come to the salsa event? Whatever it may be, I think tech in your workplace is quite a good place to start. I know that's controversial. Dancing definitely has made me meet a lot of people, whether that's music gigs or going salsa, kind of Latin dancing events. You meet a lot of people that way. I think it's finding your niche and finding what excites you. And I guess I have the the skill of being an extrovert. I don't know if I am an extrovert, but I definitely have the skill of being an extrovert of just being able to talk to anyone. So if I am at a gig and there's someone standing next to me that looks vaguely friendly, I will just be like, hi, (laughs) can we talk? That's a really nice way of meeting people and getting someone's WhatsApp number and then getting them to show you around. So if you join a book club or whatever it may be, just speak to the person next to you. Don't be scared of putting yourself out there a little bit. Easier said than done, I know, especially as you get older, but you just have to lose that embarrassment. Thank you so much, Anissa for today's session thank you for sharing thank you for joining us on the podcast i know there'll be another destination there'll be another set of places there'll be people who are like i'm in germany where's anisa i need to call my friend where can our listeners find out more about you and the work that you do if you are in canada in january february or march come and say hello i'll be in toronto but if you want to find me online i'm at anisa ob on twitter and at Anissa underscore OB on Instagram. And I do reply to DM. So give me a shout if you are moving to any of those places. You've been listening to Stemets Say What, Say what. Say what. a podcast brought to you by Stemets. To find out more about Stemets, visit stemets.org or you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, TikTok, and YouTube via the handle Stemets. Don't forget to subscribe to the show so you'll get the latest episode of Threats Say What in your feed as soon as it's released. And while you're there, please leave us a review and let us know what you thought. I'm Amria Maffedon. And I'm Carla Rosario. Bye for, Bye now. for now. This podcast is produced by Unedited.